Welcome to Westside Family Fellowship in Prince George, B.C., Canada. We're all about pursuing God, nurturing community, and strengthening family, with a mission to see all people become a part of God's family. Okay, good morning, everyone. Good morning. (laughs) Happy Sunday. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, So our class is called Discipleship. I think that's the name. It's not up there, but Discipleship 101, I think was the name. Uh, And Pastor Lucas gave us a great primer. That's the coat you put on before painting. A great primer to get this class started. And I'm very excited to talk today. Today's class is going to feel more like that, a class than a sermon. It's going to be a bit more, here's a fancy word, this is my $20 word, didactic. (laughs) I know. It means... It means teaching. <laughs> I've lost one already. <laughs> so it's going to be a bit more teaching focused than sermon-like, sermonic. Um, but I really hope it's encouraging. Um, and we'll get into exactly what we're talking about in a second. But first of all, I should pray. I should pray. Let me, let me pray first. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace, Lord. We thank you that you know all of us and you knew all of us before we were even born. Thank you that you've ordained this exact day, all the words that will be spoken, everything that will happen, you've ordained it. Thank you, Lord, that you are totally in control of everything and that we can put our unwavering trust in you and your peace comes over us that surpasses all understanding and all knowledge. We thank you, Lord, for that great comfort and we pray this in your mighty name, amen. Okay, so imagine this. Here's my scenario for you. You're in a public setting to some degree. It could be a family dinner, or you're at a college campus, or you're out downtown at the Life Center. You're somewhere where there's people. And a particular person challenges you on why you are a Christian, and more specifically, why you believe this thing, this book. Publicly, out loud, and you care about this person to some extent. You're interested um, in seeing them become a Christian, if you're a Christian. And uh, they, they challenge you publicly, and they have their eyebrows furrowed. Why do you believe in that? Or what, how do you know? Where's your proof? Whatever they say. And you're in front of a group of people. What would you say? Some of us might feel like we have a good answer for that question, but for most of us, it's probably like my face would flush red, my knees would start vibrating, <laughs> and I'd go, oh, I, I just really love Jesus. <laughs> and then we'd hope that it worked. <laughs> Young person, young person here today, if you attend Westside Academy or, woo, or another Christian school, or not, or not Christian school, maybe you don't, but young person, when you leave school and maybe you go off to college or you go to work a job and you start feeling that distance from your family in a healthy way and you find the world around you is quite secular, it is quite non-Christian, and you come face to face with those encounters. Maybe it's a coworker at the place you work. Maybe it's a student. Maybe it's your professor who openly mocks 
your Christian faith in front of a classroom? What do you say when the comfortable bubble of your family and your, your close friends dissipates and you're out in the wild, so to speak? What do you say? Maybe your response is, I was just raised this way. Maybe it's my parents believe this or my pastor believes this and I trust them. Maybe it's, it just seems right. Or it could even be, I never really thought about it. Why do you believe this? Why do you believe Jesus is real? How do you know? I never really thought about it. Or seasoned Christian in the room. Maybe you've been a Christian for 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years, or 40 years, or 50 years, maybe even 60 years, or more. After decades of belief and following Christ, and someone challenges you on that question, will you have a good answer? It certainly ought to be better than the younger people who have followed Jesus for less time. If you've followed Christ for decades, the reason you believe ought to be a stronger answer than those younger than you. But what will you say in that moment? Maybe you'll say, I've just always known God. Or you've said, or you'll say, I've experienced what's in this book to be true. I've just experienced it to be true. Or maybe you'd say, well, this has survived for thousands of years, and did you know it's the most printed book of all time? Which is true, by the way. Nice flex. Or might, you might say, people I trust uh, have looked into it, and they've said it's trustworthy. And so, therefore, I trust it. Now, none of those answers are wrong, but are they strong answers? That's the question I want to ask you today. Are they strong answers? I'll address one more group. Or perhaps you're a skeptic yourself, and you actually doubt it yourself. And you look at this, and you're like, okay, I see the benefits in people's lives, but I don't know. At best, this book, the, the amount of trust people put in this book is unnerving, at best, and at worst, it is totally nonsensical that you just believe this is the Word of God. And the question that haunts you is, how can we be sure? So I'm trying to, trying to catch the whole group here. And there might be another group that I've missed, but how do we respond to that question? We live in a time where the amount of information we are barraged with every day is a thousand times greater than any other era. So much information coming down the tube at all times. You pick your phone up and it's just colors and lights and sounds and news reports from all over the world. This is happening, this is happening. You pop up on YouTube and there's billions of videos with every opinion and perspective in the books, and it is very overwhelming. I would compare this era to maybe 250 years ago in a church. A pastor would come up and speak a bunch of Christian truths to his flock. They would go home and probably not hear hardly any other opinions until the next Sunday. Where are they going to get it from? You might walk past someone in the street and they tell you something. I don't think, I don't know what, when did the newspaper start? I think it might have been the 1700s or... Point being, a pastor hundreds of years ago wouldn't have to worry as much about a thousand voices flooding in on his congregation every week, steering them off track. But we live in an age where we are 
stewing in secular sewage. Sewage, excuse me, not stewage. <laughs> Stewing and sewage. Sewage. There's so much out there. The scary thing for a lot of us is that most of our opinions, our political opinions, our views of God, our worldview comes from, at this point, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. And if you're really academic, you might go to the news page. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not shaving you for that, but I'm just pointing this out. There's so much going on, and I would submit this to you today. We need to know the word better. It's content, it's meaning, it's origin. That's what we're going to talk about today and its trustworthiness. 1 Peter 3, this classic verse, this is actually what the academy students are memorizing right now. It says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. That's actually a really high charge. And every generation of Christian has had to fight different battles. Because the culture that they've existed in has had different accusations against the church or different biases, biases, different perspectives. And there's been different battles that the church has had to fight over millennia. The very first century church, the huge debate if you read through the book of Acts was whether or not non-Jewish people have to first become Jewish before they can become Christian. So that do the men have to get circumcised and go through all of the Jewish proselytization rituals? And Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote vehemently against it and said, nay, thank God for that. You did not have to become a Jew before you became a Christian. But that was a huge debate. And the church met regularly, had meetings about it, had debates. People broke relationships over it. A century or two later, the big question was the deity of Christ. Was he actually God? Or was he a man sent by God, more like a prophet? That's what the Muslims would say. Or was he only God and there was actually no humanity in him at all? Lots of debate. Court trials. People would be persecuted for their beliefs. Another big one, Gnosticism, believed that the material world was basically evil. Our bodies, the buildings around us, the streets, the birds, the animals, everything's basically evil, and the good exists in the spiritual. And that caused a big divide. First of all, because God created the physical world, so it is good because God created it. But the issue was, if the whole material world is evil... Then two groups formed out of that. The first was, if this is all evil, then I'm not going to take part in any of it. And you got the ascetics. And they would go off into a mountain, and they would eat nothing tasty. They would starve their bodies. They would partake in nothing of the world, as much as possible, so as to be unstained from the world. Paul writes against that as well. On the other side, they said, well, if, if the whole material world is evil, and it's all going to perish and go away, and the spiritual stuff is what really matters, then let's have a heyday. Pleasure, 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 all we want, because not all this is temporary. None of it matters. 
Eventually, an early Christian empire was formed when Constantine became a Christian. That was a huge debate. What does a Christian society look like? If we're all Christians now and we want to be a Christian nation, what do Christian laws look like? Is it fair to tell non-Christians that they have to believe in Christ because they live in a Christian uh, city? The list goes on and on and on and on. And so we have our own baggage of controversies and challenges that we have to figure out and be prepared to give a defense against in today's age that are unique to today. And the big one that I want to focus on today is the Word of God. The Word of God. This has been so challenged in the last century. People ripping it apart and trying to falsify it. And so many Christians, unfortunately, get bogged down by the weight of this and they begin to lose hope. But we're called to be obedient to Christ. And in his word, he tells us to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us. Be prepared to make a defense. Now, primarily, that means be prepared to make a defense for why you believe in Christ. Why I believe Christ and I put my faith in him. But part and parcel with that is I believe his word is perfect. But this is such an attacked idea today. So this is what we're going to focus on. We're in a discipleship class. We're called to discipleship to Christ, which means to be disciplined. That's where the word comes from. And to follow him. We separate our emotions and our obedience to Christ, and we obey him regardless of our emotions. That's the beautiful call to Christ, is God, I feel this, but I'm going to trust in you. We are called to discipline ourselves for godliness. And one of the things within that is knowing the word and loving the word. I'll give you one scripture here, and then we're going to dive into it. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9, and he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's like the little thing you wear at the end of the Olympics when you win, but it's perishable. It'll fall apart and break down eventually. They do this to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable wreath, That's eternity in heaven with Christ. It's imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, says Paul. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Oh, man. It's a high charge. So here's what I hope to do today. My hope is to encourage you to place great trust in this book, to put great, great trust in this book, to help demystify some ideas that might be floating around in the back of your head. I heard someone once say this on a YouTube reel, and it just, I don't know what the answer is. It just stresses me out. And to equip you to defend this book at a very basic level. Very basic level. We're not going to become seminary students in one one morning, but (laughs) I want to try to equip you to take comfort in this book and encourage you to put your trust in this book. So the four sections I've got to this uh, teaching or this talk is what is the Bible, particularly with emphasis on the New Testament today, because we don't have time to cover all of it, but what, it is, what actually is it? 
How is it put together? How do we actually know the books in here are the right books? What are Christians supposed to believe about the Bible? What are the right things we should think about it? And what are the things we shouldn't think about it? And then why? Why does this matter? What is it? How is it put together? What are we supposed to believe about it? Why does it matter? Next week, I'm doing this session as well, and I'm going to call it Eat Your Bible. <laughs> and we're going to talk about actually practically getting into the Word and the challenge of pouring yourself into this daily, because it's difficult. But today, we're talking about what is it? Okay, there's a lot to get through. I'm going to try to move quickly, but I'll try to open up a couple spots for questions if you've got some. So what is the Bible? First and foremost, it is a book, it is the book about God. This book tells the story of God first. And the reason I say that is because often we think about it as a book for ourselves, which it is, but it's much more a book about God. We open this and read this thing to know about who God is. And in doing so, we find out lots about ourselves. In fact, more about ourselves than we will anywhere else. But first and foremost, it is a book about God. It tells us who he is, what his character is like, who he's not, and why we can put such great trust in him. The reason this is important is because for a lot of Christians, this might be obvious to you, but for some of us it might not be. For a lot of Christians, we treat this like a medicine cabinet. And when we start to feel bad about something, we quickly find this and open it, or we Google passages about this, find the passage, read it six times, and go, ah, <laughs> not a bad thing to do. I'm not discouraging you from doing that, but there's so much more to this than being a Tylenol that you take for spiritual headaches. Apart from Christ in his physical body, this is the means by which God has given us to understand and know him. And alongside that, his Holy Spirit. So the Bible particularly the New Testament, because that's what we're going to focus on today, has 27 short books in it. If you have a Bible with you, I'd actually like you to open it up uh, to the, the table of contents. If you don't, you can pull your phone out or look at, over the shoulder of the person next to you. And we just want to look at the table of contents for a second, which shows you all the books. Mine's got some fun highlighter colors in it. So what is this thing? The New Testament, 27 short pieces of writing. And they're organized and broken down in a specific way. But we as Christians would call this the canon. Canon, in its original sense, meant uh, measuring reed, which today you could think about it as yardstick. It's the yardstick. This is our standard. This is our standard for what we believe is God-inspired. Anything else might be really valuable, might be really important, but it is not on the same status as the Word of God, right? We hold it to a, an ultimate standard that no other writing amounts to. So we call this the canon, C-A-N-O-N, canon. It's like the yardstick. This was decided by the early church over uh, hundreds of years, evaluated thoroughly and debated hotly, and they landed with these 27 pieces of writing. And it's important to know that because there was a lot of other writing that surrounds it that didn't make the cut. 
One of the common words for it is apocrypha. You don't need to memorize that, but it's called the apocrypha. And there are other accounts that are close in proximity to what happened when Jesus came, had his ministry, died, and rose again. But the early church decided that it was not canonical. It does not fall into the, the word of God. We don't believe it's, it's inspired by God. Might be still really valuable for us, but it's not on the same level as the word of God. And I'll talk about more of that in a little bit. You'll be thankful that they, they cut some things out. <laughs> so there's three to four genres in the New Testament. Again, some, for some of you, this might be like, oh my goodness, I've heard this a thousand times. I know for some of us, we've may, maybe never heard this. There's three to four genres, depending on how you divide it up. There's gospel, which would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books. Acts is considered sometimes as a second genre called narrative. To me, I'm happy to put them in the same genre. Narrative, historical narrative. So the four gospels and Acts. And then there's the letters, sometimes called the epistles. If you ever wonder what that word means, it just means letters. And you look in order, right after Acts, it goes from Romans all the way down to Jude, second last book. And then the last one is apocalyptic. That's the genre, apocalyptic. The reason this is important is because genres have rules to them. There's implicit rules in a genre. If I open a book and it starts with once upon a time, I go, oh, this is fairy tale. Oh, okay, perfect. Now I know where to put this in my brain. So if they make some big story up about a man riding on a T-Rex with laser beam eyes, <laughs> I can comp confidently and quickly go, they're not asserting that this is historical truth. This is a fairy tale. Because I know what genre it is. <laughs> some of you are like, well, I've seen it. The genre is important. Or similarly, poetry. If I know that something's poetry, and I read something that says, um, his muscles were as big as an elephant's foot, or were big like an elephant's foot, and it's poetry, I know, okay, this is just imagery. It's helping to give me this picture of a man with big muscles. He didn't literally have muscles that big. Oh, that would be terrifying. Kind of like the mountain from Game of Thrones. So the genre matters, right? Because there's rules that come along with the genre. So the first things first is it's very important for us to know what genre we're in. I'll explain the organization of these letters really quickly and then we'll move forward. So the first five books are historical narrative. So someone has written this and they're giving an account of what actually happened. That might be fairly obvious to most of us. This is what actually happened about Jesus and all of his disciples at this time and in this place, especially when you get into a book like Luke. He gives all the, the date placements in the second uh, decade of this, when this such, such and such was the ruler here, this happened and such and such happened. He really tries to zero in on the date so people uh, understand that this is legitimate, it's historical, and it can be taken as true. Right after Acts, we get into Paul's major letters. So they're ordered in size here. So all the first letters come from Paul. Romans all the way down to, where are we? Uh, we'll say Philemon or Philemon. Hebrews is kind of contested. No one really knows who wrote it, but most people think Paul. But those are all the letters of Paul, and they start big and they get smaller. They start big and they get smaller. You get to the last ones, Titus, Philemon, they're like really itty-bitty. That's how they've organized it. After that, it switches authors. It goes to James, the brother of Jesus, then Peter's letters, then John's letters, 
a letter from Jude, another brother of Jesus. And then we get to Revelation. I would love to do a, a bit, give a bit of help on the apocalyptic literature, but that would be Tom's class. And we need like six hours to do that because it's complicated. All of what we call the New Testament, so everything you have in here, was all penned within the first century. Nothing was written after 100 AD. So Jesus, zero, dies around 30 AD, 33 AD, something like that. Everything written in here was done by about 90 AD. So it was all really close in proximity to when the actual events happened. This is good news for us because if you look at uh, anyone who writes about history nowadays, uh, that would be a really healthy amount of time to give before you write an account of something. It gives you a little bit of time to stand back, to gather all the details, and then give a, a recounting of it. So this is a really nice time frame from a historical validity perspective that uh, we get the New Testament coming in. All done within the first century. This becomes really important in a moment. Uh, the first writing, I think, is Galatians. It could have been Thessalonians. That was around 49 AD, so about a decade and a half to two decades after Christ resurrected and ascended. The last books were John's works. So 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Gospel of John, and Revelation. That all came around late 80s, early 90s AD. Not exactly sure. But those are the last books that came through. All of it's done within the first century. Now, the original documents, so the actual literal physical letter that Paul would have written would be called an autograph. That's the word they give to it. An autograph. Not like, uh, you know, you meet, I don't know, John Mayer on the street and you get him to sign your, his autograph. That's different. Same word, though. They call these autographs. Don't panic, but we have none of these. <laughs> we have none. Not a single one. But don't panic. Currently, we have a little over 5,000 copies of the New Testament. So people would have the writings, they'd have people sit down, and they'd write copies. Because they didn't have printers back then, right? We've got to sit down, write copies, 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 copies. There's over 5,000 copies of New Testament documents in Greek. There's, in addition to that, there's over 19,000 other copies in Syriac, Latin, and Coptic. And Aramaic languages, excuse me. Coptic, Aramaic, Syriac, and Latin languages. So for a total, we get roughly 24,000 copies of New Testament documents. Now, from a historical perspective, if you're evaluating what happened and what didn't happen in history, this is overwhelmingly positive. If I can give you a contrast, the Gallic Wars from Caesar's time, three copies. Three copies. And all of us would happily say, yeah, that really happened. Three copies in contrast to 24,000 copies of New Testament documents. Homer's Iliad is one of the highest. It's got about 600-some copies <laughs> compared to 24,000 copies. It's night and day, the difference between all of the other historical old world accounts that we have and then the gospel. It's unbelievable how well-documented it is, yet people happily discredit it and say it couldn't have happened. On top of that, the distance of writing between when the thing actually happened and then when the copies were made is the shortest for the gospel accounts. 
So, for example, Plato's writing, he wrote between 427 and 347 BC. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. That's a seven, excuse me, a 1,200-year gap. 1,200 years before it happened, and then it was written down. A lot can happen in 1,200 years. The earliest copy we have for the New Testament is about 135 or 45 AD. And the last uh, thing was written at around 90 AD. So there's like a, within a century, we start getting copies being produced. This is seriously mind-blowing compared to all the other historical document and data we have. I'm not telling you all this so you have to memorize all this stuff, but I want to encourage you that you can put great trust in the reliability and the historicity of the New Testament. On top of this, uh, one of the big critiques that you get is, uh, well, there's inconsistencies between copies. You read this copy here, you read this copy here, and this one doesn't match this one, so what's going on? We can't trust it. End of story, done, I'm going home. I'll tell you this now, about 99.5% of the copies are textually pure. They're almost identical. And the inconsistencies, almost all of them, are words like and, the, if. They're very insignificant words. We get this, this freaky idea in our heads that there's these massive differences, and you read this copy over here, and you read this one, and there's whole pages that are different, and the stories are different, the timestamps are all different. Not the case. The copying differences are minute. The reason for this is most likely just hearing issues or, sound, or eyesight issues. So what would happen is once the, uh, the, the New Testament began growing, and people were really copying it seriously. They would get uh, dozens and dozens of people in a room, all sitting with a papyrus and a quill, writing, and there'd one, be one person at the front orating all of it. And then this happened, and then this happened. And they're furiously getting it all down and making sure they're copying it. And naturally, someone's going to mishear a word here and there, and they're going to they're biff it. One of them, angels and eagles are mi mixed up. For the, for the people that are studying this and doing textual criticism, it's very easy for them to come to a conclusion of what's actually supposed to be said here. So I want to encourage you in this regard. Uh, the copies are incredibly reliable, they're incredibly consistent, and they're incredibly voluminous. 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 <laughs> There's a lot of them, and they're very good. <laughs> uh, any, any quick questions at this point? I'll move forward. We have lots of stuff to get through. I don't want to... Voluminous? means there's a lot of them. High volume, tons and tons. Okay, so quick piece here, contradictions. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've watched bits on YouTube where someone says, the Bible has tons of contradictions. It totally contradicts itself. It's not trustworthy. <laughs> the first thing you do if someone says that to you is you say, oh, could you show me one? I saw a video the other day, and it's brilliant, and it's two guys sitting on like a college campus, and this guy with the chip on his shoulder says, yeah, you know, everyone knows this, the, the Bible has over 500 contradictions, and the, guy, the other guy so calmly just says, oh, would you, you, would you show me one? And you've never seen someone's face go so red so quickly. He had no idea what a single one was. He just read it somewhere, or someone told him in passing, and he took it because it's a convenient truth. It allows him to deny uh, thinking act actively about Christianity. Oh, someone said it's, uh, it's contradictory. I don't have to think about it. Easy, done. <laughs> the first thing you do if you're ever telling someone about Jesus and they challenge you on Bible contradictions is to ask them to show you one. 99% of the time, they're not going to have one. 
However, I want to give you three solutions to what sometimes seem like Bible contradictions. Sometimes you might read a passage and you go, ah, how do I make sense of that? That's totally normal. It's totally normal. First detail. Details of time and uh, specific numbers for recounting stories back in the days were not nearly as important in being specific as they are today. So a writer will write something like, there were 22,000 people. It's an approximation. However many people there actually were wasn't a huge concern for people. That's hard for us to wrap our brains around because today we go, well, what was it? Just tell me. Was it 9 a.m. or was it 10 a.m.? Was it 5,000 or was it 6,000? For ancient writers, this was not a big concern. And if you look at ancient writings across the board, you see that everywhere. It's not just a, a Bible issue. So if you see numbers that seem a bit too specific or a bit too vague, or it seems like, ah, how do I make sense of that? One of the solutions might be that it just wasn't a big concern for the, the New Testament writers. Second piece, sometimes our secular history sources can be wrong. I want to give you a quick example. Luke 2, the very opening of Luke 2 says this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration where, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. When Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, there's a historian named Josephus, who's not a Christian, and his account of governor Quirinius doesn't line up with Luke's account of when Quirinius happened and the registration happened. And so people go, ha! It's out! However, there's very much a possibility that Josephus, being a fallible human, might have made a mistake. I'm not sta stating it as fact either way, but th there's possibility. He's a human. Just in the same way that a historian today could be writing about World War II and they could make mistakes because they're human. Third piece, and this one's a bit more uh, personal for us or relatable, is we make mistakes interpreting. We make mistakes interpreting, and we think there's a contradiction when there's not. I'm going to give you a, a great example here. In Mark 9, Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. In other words, anyone who doesn't directly oppose Christians is for Christians and for Christ. Uh. Now, in Luke, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever is not with me is against me. And we might just read that at face value and say, oh, hold on a second. Jesus is contradicting himself. However, with a little careful study, we find out that he's not at all. He's talking to different groups of people. In Mark, he says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus is talking to his disciples about more of his disciples. Here's the whole passage. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. In other words, people have encountered Jesus, they've heard about Jesus, and now they're going to go try out and cast demons out in Jesus' name. And John goes, oh, well, they're not in our group, though. Is that okay? And Jesus says, don't worry about it. If they're not against us, they're for us. In the other passage, 
In Luke, Jesus is talking directly about Pharisees, non-Christians. I'll read this passage to you. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the, man, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Wow. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul. In other words, he casts out demons by demons. The prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking him from a sign, seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, quote, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. I'll skip a little bit ahead. He gives this big bit about he can't possibly be the prince of demons casting out demons because it doesn't make sense. And he says at the end, whoever is not with me is against me. In this case, he's talking specifically to the religious elite Pharisees who were not Christians who were opposing Christ. So the point being is, at first glance, you go, ah, oh, what? How do I make sense of this? Jesus is going back and forth. He's not. He's not at all. It's context. Okay, last piece regarding contradictions. There's a process called harmonization. Again, this is not stuff you need to remember, but I want to encourage you with this. A process called harmonization. So what it means essentially is uh, one account will say, you know, such and such happened, and then he went to Jerusalem. And another account will say such and such happened, and then after that they went to Caesarea or Galilee, and then they went to Jerusalem. And you go, well, one of them says he went straight to Jerusalem, and the other one says he went to, did all these other things before Jerusalem. We immediately assume they're contradicting each other. But in the first account, it never says he immediately went to Jerusalem and did no other things. It just says, and then he went to Jerusalem. You get a lot of passages like this in the Bible where it'll just move forward suddenly, sometimes months or sometimes years, and it'll say, and then when he was found in Galilee. And our modern minds, we assume that that's the very next chronological thing that happened. But it's not a lot of the time. And so we have this process called harmonization, where you take two accounts that seem like they've got issues, and you try to hold them together, and you say, can these both be true at the same time? A great example is Jesus cleansing the temple. You remember that scene? He walks into the temple, and he flips tables, and he causes a ruckus. Concerningly, at first glance, in the Gospel of John, it happens in chapter 2, right at the beginning of the Gospel. In another Gospel, it happens in chapter 12, I think, in Mark, much later in his ministry. And so we go, well, which one was it? Why not both? Why is it untrue that he did this two times? Beginning of his ministry, he goes in, sees the temple, cleanses it, continues on. At the end of his ministry, symbolically, he comes back and recleanses the temple. I'm not asserting that that's what happened, but it's certainly likely that that could be true. And people will see stuff like that and just go hard stop. No, nope, doesn't work. You said that there and you said that there. I can't believe it. And it's stubborn. It's stubborn. Okay. I'm going to move forward again. Any quick questions on that one? I hope I'm not boring you to sleep. <laughs> okay, next piece. How was it put together? The New Testament writings, how were they actually decided on? How do we know that they picked the right books? How do, how do we know that other books out there floating in the, the ether aren't also really right and really helpful? How do we know the early church fathers that made the decision on the canon were right? 
The first thing is we believe that the New Testament was inspired by God. That's, pr- that's very important. So Christians confessionally will be- believe that everything that's found in the New Testament and the way it's organized was inspired and orchestrated by God. Not just a bunch of men putting this together and crossing their fingers. So we don't believe it was a coincidence. But something to think about is the New Testament writings, everything you find in your New Testament, wasn't necessarily written with the Bible in mind. A lot of these writings have specific purposes. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to a church in Corinth to address very specific issues to Corinth. Now, I don't know if Paul knew that this was going to be in the Bible one day. Think about this. The first century Christians didn't have a New Testament. And so there's, there's a whole spectrum of different purposes behind all of these writings. In the early church, before they had the New Testament, they relied on, we say, four or five things. The Old Testament. They had the Old Testament. So the Christians, right after Jesus is gone, you read through the book of Acts, all that stuff, up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. They had no New Testament yet. They had an Old Testament. A lot of them had direct exposure to Jesus. Most of them did, especially at the very beginning. They had the apostles' teaching. So the apostles are the close 12 disciples that Jesus appointed and gave them supernatural authority over the early church. Just to them. The next was oral tradition about Jesus. So people sharing stories about what happened with Jesus, what he said, what he did. And then also Christian prophets. You read about them in Acts. A prophet came in and foresaw that there was going to be a famine here. So that was how they oriented themselves in the early church. They didn't have a Bible reading plans for the New Testament yet, like we do. They didn't have the version app. <laughs> but slowly, as you can imagine, the witnesses of Jesus and the apostles died, naturally. They start fading out. And so the church goes, well, what do we do now? What do we do now? So naturally, the church begins to focus on the writings they have left behind. And over the next couple centuries, the church begins debating hotly and evaluating all the writing they have and all the copies and trying to agree on a canon and close all of the messages from Jesus that they want to take with them into the new era. When you spend a bit of time reading some of the stuff they cut, you will be very grateful. <laughs> I said that earlier, but I'm going to read one or two for you and you're going to laugh. Here's the, uh, here's the criteria. I'm going to give you the criteria that they used to evaluate what they kept and what they cut out. There's three main things. Super interesting. The first was apostleship. So if the letter or the writing is written directly by an apostle or by someone who is in very close proximity to an apostle, uh, that's a big green light. Those were all almost accepted instantly. So all of Paul's writing, uh, Hebrews was debated a little bit because we still don't know who wrote it, but most people presume Paul. I kind of think it was Paul. So apostleship or a proximity to an apostle. So a good example is Luke. Luke wasn't an apostle, but you read about it, he spent lots of time with Paul. So he gets the seal of approval because he's close to Paul. The second one was harmony of doctrine and tone. So the doctrine that comes out of these writings feels synonymous and harmonizing with all the other stuff we have. 
And the tone of it also feels similar to the tone of this person's writings elsewhere. So if we're going, oh, is this Peter or is this not Peter? Does the tone match Peter's other writing? Is all the doctrine in check or does it raise some weird idea that seems to contradict things? Third one was the continual use in the church as a whole for a long period of time. So is almost all the church, are almost all of the churches everywhere using all of these books? If they have one book and they're wondering about it and no one's really using it except for like one or two churches or even like half of the churches, nope, not going to take it. So all three of these points had to be in very good shape for something to be considered valid. Here's an example of some things that are off. This one's called the Acts of John. This one's wild. And on the first day, we arrived at a lonely inn. We were trying to find a bed for John. But when he lay down, he was troubled by the bedbugs. And since they became more and more troublesome to him, and it was already midnight, he said to them in the hearing of us all, I tell you, bedbugs, to behave yourselves. John went to sleep. <laughs> now as the day was breaking, I got up first, and Verus and Andronicus with me. And we saw by the door of the room a mass of bedbugs collected. And when John woke up, he looked at them and said, since you have behaved yourselves and listened to my correction, go back to your own place. And when he said this, they got up from the bed. When he said this and got up from the bed, the bugs came running from the door to the bed and climbed up its legs and disappeared into the joints. <sighs> so they look at that and they go, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and thank God for that. Here's one other one. It's a, it's a lot shorter. This one's called Gospel of the Hebrews. And it says this. Even so, my mother, the Holy Spirit, took me by one of my hairs and carried me away onto the great mountain Tabor. My mother, the Holy Spirit. Right away, people go, ah, that sounds off. Nowhere else in the New Testament or the Old Testament do we have a suggestion that the Holy Spirit is someone's mother. <laughs> and so these things were pressed to the side. And I want to encourage you that Scripture, as we have it today, was very carefully organized and evaluated for a long time. It wasn't until about 400 AD that they finally closed the canon, although most of it was done about the second or third century, but 400 AD was when they, they sealed the deal and we're, we're, we're happy with it. I think Revelation was one of the last ones to get uh, approved. Okay, I want to give you seven reasons for me that I think Scripture is to be, uh, to believe Scripture is inspired, excuse me, to believe it's inspired, which means God actually put this together. Seven reasons. Again, you don't have to write this down. You don't have to memorize this. It's just helpful thoughts. One, it says it is. <laughs> it says it is. Here's a couple examples. Second Peter 1. He says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Timothy 3.16, this classic one. All scripture is inspired by God, or other translations say breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. 1 Thessalonians, last one. We also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, 
You accepted it not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. So, first reason, it says it is. First reason to believe that Scripture is inspired. It says it is. Second reason, a man that died and was resurrected is worth paying attention to, along with his friends. Legitimately, if any one of you died and actually came back to life, I would want to give you my full attention. There's more historical data that Jesus died and rose again than any other historical writings we have, and by a landslide. If a man actually died and came to life again, I want to know what he said. This is a serious thing to think about. Three, uh, you cannot explain moral evil without it. I don't think anything can explain reality that we live in like the scriptures do. And I can testify to this because I grew up as an atheist and there's no way to wrap my head around moral evil or saying something is wrong without a moral standard that comes from outside of our world. Fourth, it is profoundly historically accurate. We've already talked about this a lot, but uh, no archaeologist has ever disproven it. They might have made assertions, but as of today, there's been no archaeological evidence that has disproven Scripture. Nice. Number five, around 2,000 prophecies from Scripture have been fulfilled in the Bible. And there's about 500 remaining. They're pending, <laughs> loading. And they haven't come to fruition yet because they're going to come in the future. But 2,000 prophecies. When you keep in mind that the Bible was written, Old Testament included, by over 40 different people, for, for 40 different people over the span of thousands of years, and over 2,000 prophecies have been deadly accurate. The standard for prophetic accuracy or for prophetic validity in the Old Testament was unless your prophecy is 100% accurate and it comes true, you're going to get killed because it's so dangerous to make prophecies that aren't from God. And so the prophets of old had their lives on the line if they were going to dare speak a prophecy out loud. Yet we have 2,000 prophecies that came true, whether it's about nations crumbling, the Babylonians or the Assyrians, or Christ coming thousands of years later before he was prophesied. It's riddled with completed prophecies. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. Uh, number six, it is hands down the most influential book in history, without a doubt. Most printed book, most influential book in history. I told this story last time I spoke a sermon, but there was this uh, atheist fellow who's a historian, and he was trying to figure out how the, the modern world so dramatically shifted away from the mindset that the ancient world had. And he said, I couldn't find any other thing that lined up so, so accurately than Christianity. It was such a sweeping turning point in the history of mankind for how we think about ethics, society, life itself, morals, purpose. And then the last one is personal, but it's because the Holy Spirit works and confirms all of it in my life. So that would be when I talked about at the beginning, you know, I've experienced this to be true. It's not a bad answer but there's other good answers that you're missing out on. Okay. Next section, we're going to move forward. This is our last section before we kind of conclude how we do in 11.53. Okay. Section three is what should we believe? What are the things we should think about Scripture? What are the opinions we should have about it? What are the things we shouldn't think about Scripture? And why? Uh, a, word, a, a phrase for this is the doctrines of Scripture, the beliefs 
the agreed-upon beliefs about Scripture. Number one, I'll, t- I'll tell you the four I'm going to give you. It's inspired, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, and it's sufficient. Inspired, authoritative, inerrant, and uh, sufficient. And I'll just break each of those down, and then we'll come to a close. It's inspired. So I've been saying this the whole time, but this is the linchpin. This is the cornerstone of belief about Scripture. It is inspired by God. Now, in recent times, this is broken, and there's been hot debate about it. Some people believe in limited inspiration. That means we believe that the Bible is uh, inspired by God in, in the matters of faith and spirituality, but not in terms of history and science. So for some things, it's helpful, but for other things... Well, it's not for us. The other view is plenary inspiration, which means it's all inspired. That's the position I'm taking. And I'm going to tell you the issue with the limited version here. You get yourself in a big contradiction pool. So people say scripture is limited in history and science, historical facts, scientific truths, but faith and spirituality, it's great. Here's the question. Well, who gets to decide where the lines are drawn? If that's the case, then does Pastor Lucas get to stand up and say, well, this is the true area and this is the not true area? And why does he get to decide? In other words, where do you cut, where do you divide the line? Furthermore, if we can't trust these authors with history facts, why would we trust them with philosophy and theology, which is much more serious and consequential? Uh, I don't trust you with your historical uh, data, but I'll trust you with big questions about life and the universe and meaning and purpose and God. That's backwards. Here's a, here's a question. What do you do with a sentence like, Jesus died on a cross for our sins? That's simultaneously historical, but simultaneously theological. If it's true that the Bible's only legitimate in the faith side, but not in the history side, then what do we do with a passage like that? Ah, it's kind of true, but it's kind of not true. You get yourself really tied up in a knot here. The reason this happens is people see apparent contradictions, what they at first perceive to be contradictory, and they go, okay, I can't trust Scripture here, but I can still get some good stuff out of it. It really falls apart real quick, the more you start to think about it. If we don't hold that all of Scripture is inspired, things fall apart real quickly. Remember the 2 Timothy 3 passage. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It doesn't say most of. It says all. So, next piece, authoritative. Because Scripture is God's Word, it is authoritative in its nature. It carries the weight of God's commands as rule over all creation. Jesus himself asserts this all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a couple pieces. These are just three examples. Jesus affirms the Old Testament's validity as the word of God. In Mark 7, he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written? So he's going to quote the prophet Isaiah to these Pharisees. Here's the quote. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he says this, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. 
So right there, Jesus attributes Isaiah to the commandments of God. Jesus also verified his own words as God's words. In Matthew 5, he says this, You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Here's the underline. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, etc., etc. So he says, you've heard God's word saying this, but I say to you. He's lifting his own voice up to an equal authority with God's voice. Last one, New Testament. He said to the disciples, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. So he promises that after he goes, the Holy Spirit's going to supernaturally empower the apostles to not only recall the things Jesus taught, taught them, but also to uh, have insight and discernment going forward with what to do. All throughout Scripture. These are just three small examples. Next one, inerrant. This is one that has been hotly debated in the last several decades. The, the thought is this. Because Scripture is God's Word and God cannot lie, Scripture is incapable of erring. Here's a couple scriptures for you. Psalm 119. This is David speaking. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in heaven. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Jesus said this, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Inerrancy. And the last one, sufficiency. This is one of my favorites. Scripture contains all of the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. It is totally sufficient. That's Second Timothy passage again. All scripture is inspired by God, etc., etc., for the training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Equipped for everything. Oh, you guys have been so good today. Thank you for your patience. I'm going to wrap us up now. So, to restate the whole, the whole goal of this talk, I want to encourage you that this book you have is incredible. It is so worthy of putting your trust into. It is so reliable. And by all history standards, it is incredibly uh, accurate. All those myths that might be floating around in your head that people assert confidently without any backing, that a scripture is weak, it's got plot holes, it's got loopholes, it's got contradictions. If you spend time with it, they fall apart. Here's the thought I want to leave you with. Why does any of this matter? Is this just like academic talk? If you have a right view of this book, of scripture, then... Everything you read from this book would be as if Jesus himself were standing in front of you in the flesh, saying the exact same thing. Now that really changes the way that you listen to those words, with the holes in his hands and the pierced wound in the side, and he's glowing. Just imagine that, and he's standing right in front of you, and he says something directly out of here. That's how we should view the word. And you can imagine how this radically changes the way we approach this and the way we live our lives when we view it in such a way.
if we think there's errors in it and there's flaws in it and it's only partially trustworthy, uh, the word will not come back void in your life. It will fall short because you don't see it for what it is. It is the sword. Cuts deep into us. It shows us who we really are. As if Jesus himself were talking to us directly. So I want to encourage you to put your trust in this. Put your trust in him by putting your trust in his word. And uh, that's it. I'm going to pray. And um, I've got a book recommendation for anyone who's interested. If you want, there's a, a really small book I can give you. I don't have one with me, but I can recommend to you. Um, if you want to read a little bit more about this. But this is really helpful for us to remember. So I'm going to pray. And then I think I'll release us because we're kind of wrapping here. 12, 12 o'clock is like close time, hey? Okay. All right. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you knew all things before the foundation of the world. We thank you, Lord, that you planned all of this and that you beautifully and gloriously wove your word together through human hands to deliver to us so that we might know who God is, so that we might pour ourselves out before the real Christ, so that we might see you clearly and have a right view of you, God. Lord, help us to run to you and run to your word and feed ourselves spiritually every day to draw close to our Savior. God, fill our hearts afresh with comfort and hope uh, that you are with us, Lord, and that you've given us your never-ending, timeless, perfect word, and that we can take great comfort in that, Lord. Thank you so much, God, for all that you've done. Keep us close to you and fill us with awe and wonder, Lord, as we dive into your words and experience Christ daily. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning sermon from Westside Family Fellowship. Find out more about us at our website, wffpg.ca, and on Facebook and Instagram.